The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said to the people, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one that would betray him. And he said, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted them by my Father. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. The Gospel of the Lord. What do the following phrases have in common? Hang up the phone. Roll down the window. Hold your horses. That's a Kodak moment. If you caught on, all of these phrases are expressions that we sometimes use in common speak and yet do not resemble the current context of our everyday life. How can you hang up your smartphone? What does that mean? We would have to be more accurate in saying, you mean you want to press end call instead. There's nothing on the wall to hang up modern day phones. Rare are the vehicles that allow you to roll down anything that resembles a window anymore. It's all automatic. And what's Kodak anyway? Now imagine these same phrases 2,000 years from now, how much even more out of context they would be. If you went into the schoolyard and said to the children, hold your horses, they look puzzled at you when you say that now, let alone 2,000 years from now. What horses? What am I talking about here? Well, in a certain sense, God's word, the Bible, is filled with phrases, stories, and expressions that also have a context to them, a historical particular context that helps us understand better their meaning and to appreciate them more. Of course, God's word is eternal. It's timeless. It's teaching about how to live and God sharing his heart with us for all ages. It's not bound by any historical time. But God chose to use human authors to inspire regular human beings like St. Paul, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the list goes on and on, to communicate to us God's love story, God's desire for a relationship with us, and how to experience the very best of the abundant blessings he wants to give to us in life and also how to perceive, persevere through the obstacles that come our way. And so it's important for us when we come up to passages in the scriptures that might be puzzling to us, 
that might cause us to doubt or even to cringe at times and wondering, is this really God's word speaking to me? What does he mean by all of this? It's important for us then to dive into the context and to understand the intention as well, not of just the Holy Spirit, but of the author of the book or the letter. This is a prime example today in our second reading of this. It's St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the people of the city of Ephesus, a large metropolis in Asia Minor, the Middle East. And here for the people in Ephesus, this letter is called the queen of St. Paul's letters. It's like the pinnacle, the summit of his teaching, the most beautiful written in the original Greek. It's polished. Paul has a lot of experience in preaching and all is going well to explain the faith in this letter. Pope St. John Paul II says that if we don't understand the letter to the Ephesians, we're missing out on something of God's love for, love for us in the world. If we don't understand this letter, we're gonna miss out on understanding something of God's love for us in the world. And so if this is a real important letter, then I think it's important for us to dive in to the context and understand the message, which is a message on how to live out family life and the sacrament of marriage today found in our second reading. And yet so many people are turned off by this passage. It was used at most weddings for centuries as the chosen reading for bride and groom. Now it's the love is patient, love is kind reading, 1 Corinthians 13, that is most common. But part of the passages are just not known to us because they're out of context to our modern sensibilities. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the body, the church, of which he is the Savior. I always like to look out into the congregation at that time of the reading and see some of the husbands trying to get their wives' attentions. And nope, the wife is focused on God's word being proclaimed. Nothing else is happening around her whatsoever. What does St. Paul mean if this epistle letter is so important for us? I'd like to delve into this so we can understand it better because it offers us a most beautiful vision and teaching of family life, marriage, and life in the church and in a community at large. First of all, a bit about Ephesus. Ephesus was a city of several hundred thousand people. It was a large metropolis and a port city. It did not have a large Jewish population, and so monogamy and marriage, faithfulness between one husband and one wife and a family unit was completely foreign to their mentality. This is how family life looked at that time in that city that was a pagan Gentile territory of the Roman Empire. A husband had a handful of women that bore children for him, and he had several others who were mistresses for his own use and pleasure. Very far away from the ideals of marriage that we have come to know revealed to us in God's word. And now all of a sudden, though, there's a small group of Christians that have been established in the church Paul had planted there in Ephesus, and they're living marriage in a very radically different way of one husband and one wife and one set of children for life. This was revolutionary, but it was also the subject of much criticism in the greater society around them. They would get persecuted. They would get blamed for things. They would get made fun of and mocked and teased. Could you imagine a husband faithful to one wife going to work in that type of society? At every coffee break, he probably got teased to no end, right? And now what's happening is these little group of Christians are going and falling back into their old ways, and family life and marriage is taking a hard hit. 
So St. Paul wants to intervene and get them back on track with God's vision for marriage, which is an image of his own love. So that's the context of this letter. And St. Paul is going to use images common to the day in order to get everybody to understand how important this is to be lived out. And so the first line is important for us to understand. It gives us the context of the rest. He says this to both men and women, both husbands and wives. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. In the time of St. Paul in the Roman Empire, everybody was a subject to somebody. Everybody had a boss and it was not just at work. Everything in society was categorized by ranks, where you were in the army, where you were in your work world, where you were in your families, where you were in your finances, where you were in your ages, and everything had a subject to one another, even the slaves to the people working in the king's court. The only person who wasn't a subject to somebody else was the emperor himself, the top of the chain. Now St. Paul flips this completely upside down in saying everybody is equal. Men and women, husbands and wives, young and old, everybody's equal now in dignity in God's sight because we're just subject to one person, Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. He is the King. He is our Savior. And all of us are only subject to him. Well, that creates a whole new world order, right? I don't think we always realize the big impact of that. And so mutual love of husbands and wives in equality would have changed the whole vision of how people looked at marriage at the time, and Jesus would be the example. So this makes it clear from this point forward in our faith life that any misogynism, any male chauvinism, any male domination in our church or world history is not the result of the biblical vision of marriage, is not the result of God's plan for marriage, it's the result of sin. It's the result of our own human failures as men, as husbands, as people in the world, and as church leaders. That's the failure there. God's vision is grandiose and very elevated and dignified. And so we continue with that understanding that he tells now everybody to be under Jesus Christ, to be subject to him. And the original word here means to be placed under the mission of Jesus. So really it would be better worded in a way be placed under the same mission of Jesus for one another out of reverence for Christ. And what was the mission of Jesus? To lay down his life for others. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give himself in perfect love, in true love, right up until the cross. And so that's the mission that St. Paul gives to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. How did Jesus love the church? completely giving himself up even until the cross, giving himself completely and wholeheartedly in a life of service and of charity over to the church, his spouse, and to us, his people. Now, when a husband lives that out in marriage, that's a beautiful thing. That's a powerful example of spiritual leadership, of authentic love, and of service to his spouse, children, family, and community at large. And right from the get-go in our church from the early centuries, the church fathers and the way this passage was interpreted, that if the father of the family, the husband, does not take that leadership and placing himself under the mission of Jesus to love his wife with the love of Christ and his children in the same way, then the wife is meant to fulfill that role. 
and to take that leadership, to take that headship of the family, leading them into the ways of faith and taking that place when it cannot always be fulfilled by the husband, perhaps of illness, because of death, because of other circumstances and separations that always occurred in different times in church and world history. And so both are mutually called to this important level of service to one another and mutual love. The second line that kind of trips everybody up and kind of can make us cringe is the second one, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the savior. This is another line to show equality amongst the spouses. Heads separated from bodies don't do so well, and vice versa. Equal head and heart together are ways in which the body thrives and remains unity and equality in one. The same vision for husbands and wife. But when we hear the word head, it's tainted with our modern day prejudices. The head for us is the head of a state, the head of a company, the CEO of a business, somebody with power and prestige and over top and maybe lording it over others. But the Bible's vision of headship is not one of a person on the top. It's the one of a person on the bottom. It's the inversion of a pyramid. And so we even call the Pope in the church the servant of the servants of God. He's the head of the church, but in reality, he's not the head like a CEO or a politician. He's the first that is called to serve, the first that's called to lead us into the ways of the truth of love of Jesus Christ. And the same way for husbands, just as Jesus says, the first shall be last, just like he rode in triumphantly on Palm Sunday, not with chariots and armies, but humble as on a donkey, that humility and that true authentic love in marriage can go a long way. That's that love that Jesus gives to us. Keep in mind here that in St. Paul's letter, there are two verses of instructions for wives and 11 that follow for the husbands along the way. That's the beautiful passage there. And he reminds us that our bodies, and this was revolutionary for the time too, and is for nowadays as well, that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. When a husband and wife get married in the sacrament of marriage before the altar, it's the only sacrament where the priest is just witnessing the sacrament taking place. It's not dependent on the priest doing the actions of pouring the water like at baptism or consecrating the bread and wine at the Eucharist. It's the very bodies and souls of the husband and wife ministering to one another and making the sacrament a reality. Our bodies reveal the invisible presence of God in our world. They're not just something that we can manipulate and use and change as we would like. They're a gift from God. We don't own them. And we're temples of the Holy Spirit that reflect this presence of God's love, not just in marriage, but in everyday life. So with these kind of clarifications in mind, if St. Paul was to write this letter today in modern day language with modern day categories, because we don't have everything categorized like they did in the Roman Empire, he might begin the phrase this way. Wives, allow your husbands to serve you and love you like Jesus loves us. That sounds pretty acceptable. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus has loved us, going right up to the cross and giving his last breath and laying down his life so that others may experience the blessings and joys of this life. It's demanding. Some may say it's idealistic. It's based and rooted in sacrificial love but it's only possible with the grace of the Holy Spirit that we receive in the sacraments in our prayer. So what does this all mean for us? 
whether we're married, single, priests, young, old, widowed, whatever it might be, whatever our circumstances of life. Well, first, I think it helps us appreciate the beautiful sacrament of marriage and family life. But second, it also reminds us of the power of the gospel, the revolutionary power of God's word lived out in our lives of faith. The marriages of those few couples in the city of Ephesus transformed a city of several hundred thousand people who are not living according to that vision of life. It transformed a whole empire, a whole reality of the universe was transformed by a revolutionary way of living and of loving. A revolution not based on violence, on hatred, on war, but a revolutionary based on God's vision for love, for marriage, for family, for communities, and for the world. And so in any time we find ourselves struggling with passages from the Bible that may seem difficult for us to accept or strange or even make us cringe at times and wondering how can this be God's inspired word, hold our horses. Because it might just be going, needing going back to the context, understanding the vision that God had for this and understanding it at a deeper level. And so whenever we struggle with anything in our faith, we can take the words of Simon Peter in the gospel as many of Jesus' disciples left because they struggled with the teaching that the Eucharist is the real body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, Jesus asked the twelve, Do you wish also to go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We echo Simon Peter's words in our prayer this day as well.